shifting gears just a, a little bit, uh, I was thinking about power tools this week. That's a hard segue from that song, isn't it? it sounded good when I was thinking of it earlier. That's a good song. Uh, one of the reasons I was thinking about power tools this week, though, was uh, we had that situation with a pump in the basement and water overflowing. Uh, and and I just wanted to thank the Lord for shop vacs, you know, wet dry vacs. Yeah. Uh, what else you would do if you couldn't suck up the water into a big giant container and dump it somewhere else? Uh, but I was also thinking about more powerful power tools, and in particular, miter saws. You know, that's that basically giant saw blade thing with a big motor attached to it that you could just go up and down and cut things and go a little bit side to side and cut angles and stuff. And if you've ever tried to saw something with a regular saw, right, you're like, all day, right? Miter saw, you just go, yeah. Yeah. It's just like that. It's like butter. As long as it's not too big, it's like butter. Well, the thing is, right, they're loud, they're noisy, they're easy, they're convenient and all that. And they're also kind of dangerous. I looked at statistics this week. Did you know that power tool injuries are the most common injury in the construction industry and in the do-it-yourself home repair area. Uh, they happen, in fact, more often at home, as you probably imagine, right, with amateurs like me using power tools. Thankfully, I have all of my fingers. I know people who don't, who have lost fingertips and things like that. There are, in fact, nearly a million injuries every year and 200 deaths from power tools. They're kind of intimidating. They're loud, they're sharp, they're dangerous. They're also powerful. They can be very effective. And as we turn back to the Word of God today, we're looking at Psalm 97, the last of the songs of praise that we're going to look at this summer. And after Freedom of Christ Sunday, we'll get into songs of the King. And this, this psalm is a kind of transition because it speaks of praise and it speaks of the Lord as King. So Psalm 97, and we encounter the Lord who is more powerful than any power tool than you can imagine, right? He's also kind of louder than them. And in fact, he's more dangerous. He's not a machine. He's a person. He is relational, not mechanical. He's active, not passive. He's involved, not absent. And in fact, with all of that together, that's what makes him dangerous. That's what can lead us to some anxiety in life, some fear, some uncertainty. But in fact, what this passage also says is that that can be a source of great joy, of great gladness. So let's look at Psalm 97 and see what that all means for your life, for your particular anxieties and fears. Let's read Psalm 97. And let's do it uh, interactively. 
If you would, I will read the odd-numbered verses, and together we'll read the even. So just here on the first one, I'll read the first one, and together we'll read number two, and we'll go that way through the rest of the passage. But if you would, you read with me Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones, who delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word that it is powerful and effective, that it is both quiet and loud, and that it is dangerous, and yet also can bring joy and gladness. Lord, help us to wrestle with those very things, to find some hope and comfort, some certainty in the midst of uncertainty, and a path forward in a crazy world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I wonder if, uh, you know, talking about power tools and the t- statistics uh, causes you any anxiety. If it makes you a little more hesitant to use them or maybe to have like a loved one, spouse, child, somebody use them. It's often the case in fact, that what causes us to be anxious, what causes us to have anxiety is a lack of control, uh, uncertainty about the outcome. And so to have know someone you love is going to do something dangerous, it causes us anxiety. Uh, that is, we're uncertain about what's going to happen. But what the future will hold, will they be safe? Will they be foolish? You, know, you experience it yourself. I'm, I'm sure if you've ever been driving along, you know, and Unless you're a very special individual, a police car pulls up behind you, even without the lights on, you're going to get a little anxious, right? Was I speeding? Did I miss a red light? Did I go through a stop sign? Did I do something wrong? Some of us might be very concerned. Am I going to get pulled over? Will they pull a gun on me? What's going to happen? I don't know. This uncertainty, lack of control, anxiety, fear, perceived threats, fear the possibilities. That, that's what anxiety is all about. And as we come to this passage, it's, it's a really good picture of the Lord in the midst of fears and uncertainties for you and I. Now, There's a lot of uncertainty about God in this psalm. There's mystery and power, danger, uncertainty. There's also joy. 
and gladness. Did you see that throughout the psalm where he speaks in the psalm? Verse 1, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Verse 8, The daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of Your judgments, O Lord. Verse 12, Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones. Give thanks to His holy name. In those last two, the, the be glad and give thanks, those are actually commands. That it is this God who is a powerful cloud, lightning, consuming, is the one that we're supposed to give thanks to. The one that we're supposed to find joy in. The psalm is basically saying overall, the Lord reigns. God is in control. He's the King. And that can be a source of joy for you. And in fact, can be the death of anxiety for you. Let's look at that and how that can work for us. And the first thing to recognize is that the, the Lord is the King you were made to serve. The Lord is the King you were made to serve. This is the order of the universe. This is the way things are supposed to be. Verse 1, Psalm 97, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands or coastlands be glad. You know, God is the center of it all. That should bring joy, not just to Israel and to the people that hear this psalm initially, but to all of the world. All of the earth should be rejoicing that God is the King. That the, the islands far away should be rejoicing. The whole earth should have joy. Verse 9 says it this way, You are the Lord Most High over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. That this is who God is. He's above everything else. And all that is. Verse 7, the end of verse 7, worship Him, all you gods. Now there's something weird going on there if you're paying attention, right? Why does it say you're exalted above all gods? And verse 7, why is He calling gods to worship? I didn't think there were any other gods beside the true God. It could be the case in verse 9, you're exalted above all gods. It could be that that's false gods. That you are the true God above all. But then in verse 7 where it says, worship Him all you gods, that seems a little confusing. And, and it is. The, the, the problem is the word behind gods in both of those verses is the Hebrew word Elohim, which you may have heard of. And it's a generic word for God. In fact, Genesis chapter 1 where it speaks of the true God creating heaven and earth and everything that is. That, that's the word that's used. God created. In the beginning, God created. And God said. And God spoke. And God said. Uh, God, God, Elohim, Elohim. That same word for God. It can be that generic word just like our English word, God. It can also, though, refer to false gods. The so-called gods. You could think of it as you know, gods in quotes. But it could also speak, and if you have the New American Standard Version, like where Pew Bibles are, you might notice that there's a little asterisk or a little number or something like that. And if you look at that on the side or down the bottom, 
it says supernatural powers or supernatural powers. And that's, that's another sense for this word Elohim. Sometimes it's translated angels. So, in fact, the, the earliest Greek translation of the Old Testament, hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, puts the translation there with the word angels. For the second time, God appears. Or I'm sorry, in, in verse 7. Worship Him, all you angels. And most likely, that's behind Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, where it says, let all the angels of God worship Him. Having said all that, really, you can get the sense of what's going on. That the psalmist here is saying, basically, the Lord reigns. (laughs) He's the king. There is no one else. He's the capital K, king of all kings. He is the Lord, the master of all masters. In heaven and on earth, that's the right order of things. That's the way the world is. You might not like it. You might resist it. But you cannot change it. God created everything. He upholds it by the word of His power. It's His world. And the problem for us is that we distort that order. That we don't line up with God's design. We we fail to prioritize Him. To make Him the King. To live as if he were actually in control. That he were the one who sets the rules. He was the one who made the world. He's the one who made us. The one who laid down all the principles and everything else. In fact, verse 7 puts it this way. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. The word for serve there is about work or in fact could be about slavery. Those who are enslaved to graven images is is another word for idols, for for empty things, who boast themselves in idols or or emptiness, things that have no real worth or value. They boast themselves in it. That's, That's in essence praising those things. Let those be ashamed who who bow down to false gods who praise worthless things as if they did something for them. You read through Isaiah, and it shows up in Paul as well, sometimes in the New Testament, that in fact, you know, it's the great passage in Isaiah 40 through 44 or so, where Isaiah is mocking idolatry. You know, you cut down a tree, and half of it you use to make a fire and keep yourself warm. The other half, you carve into an intricate idol, and you bow down to it and say, you know, you're my God. It's like you don't think about the fact that you're burning half of it and it's keeping you warm, and the other half you're bowing down to it's a stump of wood. It can't hear. It has eyes. It can't see. It has ears. It can't hear. It has a mouth, but it can't speak. It's, it's worthless. And you're bowing down to it. You're serving it. When there's the true God above all else, you know? And we're like, no, I want the one that I made. I want the one I can carry in my pocket. I want the one who's kind of in my control. The one that I can go to and get what I want. And that's why I don't prioritize the true God. I serve created things. And it's not just stumps of wood. Don't, don't wiggle out of it by saying, well, I've never cut down a tree, much less burned half and made an idol out of the other, right? But anytime we don't put the Lord first, anytime we put even good things 
before him, we're committing idolatry. We don't have to carve a piece of wood. If we're putting any confidence in things beyond the Lord to a degree that then they begin to interfere with our trust in Him, that's a problem. We become double-minded as James puts it in chapter 1, verse 8 and chapter 4, verse 8. Jesus said it's, it's to entertain insecurity in your life. You know, it's a worry and fear. You're bringing tomorrow's troubles into today. It could wind up with uh, Martha-itis. You remember Martha was very busy doing what she knew was right, caring for all the guests of Jesus, very busy in her house, and was resentful of her sister who was just sitting there listening to Jesus. And Martha said, Lord, don't you care that, that Mary is not helping at all and I'm doing all the work? And Jesus basically says, I do care, but what I care about is you're busy with the wrong things. You're trusting in these little works you're doing. You think it's most important to have a clean house or to be the hospitable one. When I, the Lord, am right here. Jesus is basically saying, Martha, I'm the most important thing and I'm literally right here in the room. If you're not going to pay attention to me when I'm right in the room, what are you going to pay attention to? Your sister's chosen the better thing. What, what in your life are you paying attention to? Even in the morning, even here on a Sunday morning as we worship, right? What are you paying attention to? When this is the place where God invites you to worship Him and says, I will meet you here. If you want to meet the Lord, if you ever have any wonder about meeting the Lord, maybe you're at home and you haven't ever worshipped and been into a church building. If you want to meet the Lord, if you have any curiosity about what He's like, if you want to experience Him, the place to be where He says, I will be there, when just one or two are gathered together, I will be there in their midst. As we gather together, He invites us to worship. He says, come worship Me. I'll show up. Are you going to show up? What do you get distracted by? Oh, we're not doing the songs I like. Or wow, sermon went long. I'm, a, I'm not a prophet. But I, <laughs> I see patterns. Um, you know, what is distracting you? When literally the Lord meets us here on a Sunday morning. And he, he'll, he'll meet you in other places as well. He's the Lord. We need to prioritize Him. That's the order of creation. Right? He's the King you were made to serve. We need to stop distorting. But there's another problem here that the psalm brings out. And it compounds the situation. It's not just that the Lord is the ruler of all things. He's the King we're made to serve. And we distort the order. But if you look at the... The other aspect here is this I don't even know what to call it. I struggle to, you know, main points, you know, I want to have a nice clean label, but I, I, I struggle to just capture the overarching thing that's going on here that gets in our way. And, and what I resolved is basically our problem is facing our fears. And the number one is our uncertainty about the Lord. The, the great problem as God is the King of all and ruling over all and we 
uh, have this distortion of, of reality that we distort the, the order that he made, that then that, what that leads to, what we don't realize is it leads to a bunch of fears. And number one is an uncertainty, an anxiety about who he is, about how the Lord operates, about what he values and what he doesn't. And it's pictured here in numerous ways, this, our perspective on the Lord. Look at verse 2. He's hard to understand. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. You, you can't see in the darkness, right? You don't know if you've ever been in the fog somewhere and you just, maybe you're driving and your headlights just don't cast very far into the fog. You don't know what's out there. And that's the picture here this darkness, thick darkness. You can't penetrate, you don't know what's inside. He's also dangerous. Look at verse 3. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. Verse 4. His lightnings lit up the world. That's all about danger. right? There's fire and lightning. Very fearful things. Harmful things that could strike. And am, am I his adversary? And if I get too close, is he going to strike me down? There's all kinds of danger here. Then inside, there's the hard to understand him. I don't see inside through the cloud. And that brings this anxiety and fear. Look at verse 4. He continues, The earth saw and trembled. Verse 5, The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The, the language is poetic, right? There weren't mountains literally melting like wax, right? The image is that when the Lord draws near, there's just fear, trembling, cowering. Uh, the, the conquest when the Lord's people under Joshua were heading into the promised land to take it. Uh, Rahab, among other things, said the people's hearts melt before this God that you serve. That there is this, this sense of you're being undone. You're coming apart in the presence of the Lord. And the thing is, right? You can't escape it. He's inescapably present. Verse 6. Well, verse 5. The, end, at the presence of the Lord. Actually, all verse 5. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Not just part of it. Verse 6. The heavens declare His righteousness and all the peoples have seen His glory. You know, becoming aware of the Lord is, is scary. can make you anxious and nervous. But since He's always present, there's always going to be some anxiety. Or you can't escape Him. Everyone knows that He exists, whether they acknowledge it or not. Whether they suppress that truth, as Romans 1 says, or not. We know there is a God. And the anxiety we experience, the general some people call it angst of living where there just seems like something not right. That reality is in fact due to the created order that you were made to relate to this God. That you were made to engage with Him. And we twist and distort reality. And it gives us this uncertainty, whether we acknowledge it or not, or know it or not, explicitly, we, we have this uncertainty about the Lord. And what, what that shows really is that there is actually, uh, there are certain standards. We have uncertainty with the Lord because there are actually very certain standards. Verse 2, again, says, 
clouds and thick darkness surround him. And then righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So the, the, the language of clouds and thick darkness, if you've read through the Bible, especially you know Exodus, you might find that familiar. Clouds and thick darkness. That's what happened at Mount Sinai as God had brought His people out of slavery in Egypt, miraculously sustained them for a little while or so, a month or two, through the wilderness to get them to Mount Sinai. And then He said, prepare, because the Lord's going to show up. And then this cloud shows up and all these horns start blaring, loud trumpets, and there's thunder and lightnings. Ground is shaking, trembling. Clouds and thick darkness. When the Lord comes down, Exodus 19 and 20. And what's happening there? Why are they there? Because God has delivered them. He's rescued them. He's brought them out to be His people. And He says, now what? This is the way I want you to live. I'm going to give you a very clear set of commandments. A way of maintaining our relationship with one another. I've already delivered you. I've already brought you out of slavery. There is nothing for you to do to earn that. I've given it to you now in response to that. Here's how we can get along with one another. These are my ten words. The Decalogue or ten commandments as we usually refer to them. And he appears in that cloud. And what happens? The people are like, yes! Now we know for sure how to relate to this God. We don't need to be afraid. Is that, no, that's not what it says. They go, what? No. Is he gone yet? They go, no, Moses, you talk to the Lord. And then you tell us. But that's not the only time the thick cloud and darkness appears. Keep reading through Exodus. At the end of Exodus, after the people have gathered together all their supplies, they built the tabernacle, this tent, where the Lord said He would meet with Moses. At that point that they dedicated in Exodus 40, a cloud comes down and fills this tent. The same thing happens after they get into the promised land. David gathers all the materials for the temple. He dies and Solomon, his son, builds the temple. At the dedication of the temple, this cloud descends and drives out even the priests from the presence of the Lord there in the temple. The, the Lord is saying with the cloud, with the thick darkness, that when I come near to you, 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 you can't see inside of me. When I come near to you, we're cut off. There's, there's a brokenness, which is odd because what does he say? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. The sense is that the only thing that comes from his rule and his power when he's being king, which is always, is righteousness. That is, doing what is right. A standard of right and wrong. He only does what is right. And justice is the sense of treating people as they deserve. That he does what is right and treats people as they deserve. It's right and just and good. And why does that make us anxious? <laughs> the word justice should. You know, my kids got annoyed throughout their childhood and probably still are. And they echo it back at me, you know, when they say, it's not fair. What's my answer? 
You want to talk about fair? What would fair be? Have you ever sinned? Have you ever done anything wrong? What would fair be? What is justice for just one sin? Against a holy, infinite God, one sin gets you booked eternally into hell. Just one. That would be fair. That would be just. That would be good, which is really hard to grasp for us. And that's why God is that dark cloud. We, we don't get it. We can't penetrate that. We can't see into that. And in fact, our knowledge of our own guilt and our own sin clouds Him from us. And where do we go with that? Because the end of the psalm is this, verse 10. Hate evil, you who love the Lord who preserves the souls of His godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Verse 12, Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones. Give thanks to His holy name. How do you get to that place from this place of, you know, I am not worthy to come near to God. Those lightnings and the fire should come out and destroy me just like it destroyed everyone who entered His presence inappropriately throughout all of history as we read in the Bible. Even those poor guys who were walking alongside the Ark of the Covenant and it was teetering and going to fall off of the cart. They touch it and they were struck dead. A powerful object lesson. Great cost to say you don't approach God except in the way that He says to approach Him. You're not worthy to draw near. So how do you get to this place where, where you would love the Lord? Where you would have this joy and gladness in Him? And the, the, the short answer is Jesus. <laughs> the short answer, this is why Jesus came, right? Jesus, the one who tabernacled among us. The one who came in the flesh to dwell among us. God and man together. He came what? Not in a cloud surrounding Him, right? He came among us. with grace and truth. That at that particular point in history, God might reveal that ultimate truth that He's always been pointing toward. That He will make a way. That the deep-seated anxiety and fear that we have of God and of circumstances, of things turning out poorly for us, And for those we love, that God would deal with that. In the person of Jesus Christ. It would come down. Not merely, a little foam thing just came off. Not merely to show us what it looks like to be fully human. Not merely to be a good example. Not merely to just teach us some good things and point the way to God more fully. That would be a complete burden. You know, it's like, here's a little bit more of what God's righteous law requires from you and you can't do it. Like Joshua in chapter 24 saying, you know, you're going to serve the Lord with all your heart and mind. Yeah, we're going to do it. You can't do it. 
You're not capable. You're broken. You're fallen. You need help. And Jesus comes as that one. He comes to live the life you could not live. He comes to suffer the death you should die. To pay the full penalty for your sins. To break the power of sin enslaving you. To break the tyranny of the devil. To fulfill God's righteous demands in His justice that would require your payment of the penalty for sin. That Jesus would take that. That God would be fully just and righteous and demonstrate His love and mercy to you. Putting your faith in Jesus. That what He did on the cross is to what we sang earlier. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He is worthy, Lamb of God. The anxiety that we have, the underlying fear and uncertainty about God, and 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 a fear of even looking fully at the law of God because it condemns, is, is addressed and set, you're set free from that through Jesus. That you might look at God's law and it becomes something new to you. In fact, that's what I take verse 11 to be saying. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. That it is the light and the truth of the Gospel, the good news of God through the One who is the way, the truth, and the life, the light of the world, that that would come into your heart like seed. That you would be righteous. That you would become right with God. And when Jesus died on the cross taking away your sin, He paid the full penalty. That you are in that moment declared right with God and now your task is to live that out. To become who He has declared you to be. That you would be righteous. That you would be godly. That you would be upright in heart. And there's a beauty in this. That as you understand God's righteous demands, as you do not shrink from the full weight of the commands, as you understand all that God requires of you, including what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount of going deeper. It's not just a surfacey thing. There's a depth to it that it's what your heart attitude is, that as you embrace that more and more, what happens is you understand way more of the holiness and righteousness of God. You understand way more of your own sin and brokenness, and you find that the only thing that spans the gap between you is the cross of Jesus Christ given to you freely that moves you to gladness and a joy to confessing your sins and repenting of them and committing to a new way of life. That God will work in you and through you as you live not perfectly, but repentantly. And you can apply that in particular to the anxieties of life. And there are some levels of anxiety. Don't don't hear me saying there aren't significant levels of anxiety that some of us experience that go beyond, hey, just repent and believe the Gospel. There are are brokennesses physiologically in our bodies sometimes that, that maybe we need medicine and counseling Those happen. And we can make a lot of progress on a lot of anxiety and fear in our lives 
by number one, just admitting it. You know, admit you're anxious, that you're worried. Share it with somebody you trust. Somebody who loves the Lord, preferably. And if someone shares that with you, listen. Don't go write Bible guns shooting. Oh, yeah, it's all you need. Listen. The truth sets you free. And the truth includes just owning your own circumstances. I'm really worried. I'm afraid of what will happen. You maybe write it down. Talk to someone about it. Don't distract yourself. Don't, don't bury it. Own it. Admit it. And maybe clarify what it is that you are worried about. You know, what is it about the test that you're worried about? Because it's just a test. You, you've taken other tests, right? You can fill in the little dots or you can answer questions, right? So what if you don't answer all the questions? What is it? What are you afraid of losing? What do you hope to gain? It's probably something about your reputation. Maybe it's about you know, financial help down the road. Maybe it's about pleasing your parents. What is it about the thing that you're worried about that has you worried? Try to unpack that a little bit. And then do a little sanity check. Well, how likely is it? Really? I mean, say I got a zero on the test. That would bring my average down. Would it, would it give me an F? I'd have to take the class. Well, you know, how bad would that be? Would it give me a C? I could pass. Well, how bad would that be? You know, go, go through some of that sanity checking. What, what would really happen? Face the anxiety. What, what is it you're worried about? If you can nail it down and look at it from several different angles, a lot of times that will just diffuse it. And whether or not it does, at that point, you can turn to the Lord and you can say, Lord, You reign. That really ought to be a cause of joy for me, Lord. I ought to be rejoicing in that, that You reign and You brought this test into my life. And it doesn't have to be like a literal test exam type of thing. It could be a test in your life. Uh, circumstances that are challenging. And Lord, You brought them into my life. And that, that, if You're King, that ought to be a cause of joy. And you know what, Lord? It's not a cause of joy for me right now. I'm anxious. I'm worried. And repent. Lord, I shouldn't be worried. Forgive me. You know the future, Lord. I don't. You're good. I'm not. You're righteous and whatever You bring about will be for my good. I can trust You. And I'm not. You know, someone recently shared that they were afraid, and I shared with them my go-to Bible verse, which I found when I was maybe 19 years old, and I was far away from home uh, visiting someone over the summer, and I had like a five-hour airplane flight to come back. And I had flown many times, even, even as a young man, but for some reason, I was just terribly afraid to get on that plane. I knew I was going to die. I didn't. There you go. Yeah, there you go. I have a really dry sense of humor. Sorry. Um, and as I was just afraid, I thankfully I'd come to know the Lord. 
and I stumbled on Isaiah chapter 12. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord is my salvation. It didn't make everything go away right then, right? (laughs) I was still afraid. But the light of the Word of God was planting in my heart. And take away the fear. You know, the thing you can do, and one of the beautiful benefits of taking Scripture and trying to repeat it and memorize it is that it brings you into the present. And it leaves the future with God. I will trust and not be afraid right now. I'm not even on the airplane. It's hours away. Right now, I'm going to trust and not be afraid. Now, what is it that, that, that you should be doing right now? And it's not worrying about the future. What are you supposed to be doing right now? Now, He's powerful. He's shaping the future. He knows what you want and need. And there is nothing in all creation you need to worry about. But you do. You don't need to worry about your relationship with Him if you would put your faith in Jesus. That settles it. And as you worry about things beyond that, follow that process. Turn to Him. And rejoice. And what He has done for you. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your goodness that we can cast all of our cares on You, our anxieties. You care for us. There's so many passages, Lord. As Scott said earlier, You say, do not fear. Do not be afraid. And then it says, You are the one we should fear, Lord. Help us to replace that fear of anything else with a healthy fear of You, a respect of You that starts with the fact that You own the future. And that our anxieties and our worries are actually an assault on Your character. It is a confession that we don't trust You. That we don't believe You are who You say You are or You've done what You say You did or You will do what You have promised. Lord, forgive us. And set us free. We pray in Your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.